Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. There's a term you've likely heard on the Tech Policy Press podcast in the past, the Brussels effect. The term is meant to describe the European Union's outsized influence on global markets through regulation. You may not know that the term was first coined by Anu Bradford, a professor at Columbia Law School. She wrote a book about it called The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World. Now, she has a new book just out from Oxford University Press called Digital Empires, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology. The book describes the geopolitical competition to establish digital governance models between the U.S., the EU, and China. I had the opportunity to speak to Bradford about the book and why she thinks the U.S. government, by failing to regulate its tech companies, may ultimately imperil not only the U.S. model, but internet freedom more broadly. So my name is Anu Bradford. I'm a professor at Columbia Law School in New York, and I'm the author of newly released book, Digital Empires, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology. This book came to me as a review copy, which landed with a thud. It is a pretty hefty tome. How long have you been working on this? So it took me around two years to write. I was reading pretty purposefully towards writing something about a year before that. But the writing itself was maybe a two-year process. And how does this fit within your broader research interests? So I am generally write about the global economy and global international political economy with the special focus on regulation. So my previous book, The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World, was um, my contribution to the debate on the EU's role in the world and the kind of regulatory power that the EU has that allows the EU then to shape the global marketplace. So this book is still about regulation, uh, but it really is focusing on technology regulation, so the digital economy. And it also then takes the conversation outside of just the EU. So it's looking at the the three primary regulatory and technology powers, the United States and China and the EU. You start by characterizing those three regulatory regimes. How would you characterize each in simple terms, the US, the EU and China? Yeah, so those three jurisdictions all have a different vision for the digital society, and they have embedded that vision in a different type of regulatory framework. So I have labeled these different regulatory approaches or regulatory models, the American market-driven model, the Chinese state-driven model, and the European rights-driven model. So they all reflect a somewhat different emphasis on the relationship between the markets and the state and the individual and reflect then the sort of deeper value set that each of these jurisdictions have. I've had this feeling in past when you think about the U.S. and China in particular, that it's almost like looking through a funhouse mirror. When you look through a funhouse mirror and on the other side, you see the reflection, but all the bits that were thin on you in real life are made to be more globulous and the bits that were more globulous are made to be more thin. It feels like that's the case to me sometimes when I think about how inverted the sort of China versus U.S. is. Is that right in your view? So yes and no. 
justice. So I would say that there are certainly some similarities. So even though I emphasize the state-driven foundation of the Chinese digital economy, we also need to recognize that there is a lot of sort of market-driven characteristics that are driving the Chinese uh, tech economy. So for instance, there's a lot of U.S. venture capital that went into building these massively successful Chinese tech giants. So I wouldn't say that they are completely opposite, but in that sense, your um, sort of image of thinking about these two regimes in different terms is also correct, that there are some fundamental differences. So if you think about this American philosophy it is very sort of a techno-optimist, techno-libertarian way to think about digital economy. It prioritizes free market and free speech and incentives to innovate. So the free speech part of it, obviously, is a major distinction from the Chinese model. So China, like the U.S., is very focused on making China a technological superpower. But the government also leverages technology as the tool for surveillance and censorship and propaganda in order then to entrench the political power of the Communist Party and ensure social stability in the country. So that's obviously where the, the American commitment to free speech and free internet stands in a very stark contrast to the world internet where the conversations are all filtered through a very strict censorship regime. One of the things that's interesting is through the book, you interrogate all of these different models, but the U.S. model in particular, you walk away with a sense of it, I don't know, losing its luster, the idea that perhaps the U.S. has overplayed its hand, that its goal to advance internet freedom has been somehow exposed as is really a kind of great power strategy to just to exert its influence, that the tech lash has laid bare uh, all of the sort of excesses of the U.S. model. Yes, absolutely. So in many ways, I think the U.S. model is a victim of its own early success, that the U.S. tech companies were too successful. They grew too big and today exert the kind of economic and political and informational and cultural power over societies that the individuals and governments around the world are no longer comfortable with. So at the same time, when these tech companies have provided tremendous benefit, a lot of wealth, uh, products and services that all of us around the world continue to use and have become dependent on, they are also responsible for many of the harms that we are now intensely aware of. And that has created exactly what you call the kind of tech clash or the backlash uh, against the power of these companies and an attempt for the governments to step back in and, and intervene in the marketplace and rein in the excessive power of these companies. Let's talk a little bit about that, the relationship between scale and the state, the scale of tech platforms in the state. We have similarly sized companies in China as in the US. How does the state interact differently across those two regions? I would say that in general, the, the U.S. tech companies are not beholden to the state quite to the same extent compared to their Chinese counterparts. So the, the U.S. tech companies certainly have had many connections with the, the U.S. government, the initial funding that the U.S. tech sector benefited from that came from the U.S. defense industry that really invested in uh, building these critical technologies. And um, we also know Edward Snowden, 
reveal to the entire world how these tech companies have occasionally been agents of the U.S. surveillance states and handed over the personal data that has benefited then the, the national security apparatus in the U.S. So it is not that the, the U.S. tech companies have no connections to the American state, but we also had a lot of instances where, for instance, there are requests by the U.S. government to hand over some data that is in the possession of these tech companies. And these tech companies take the U.S. to the courts and refuse to hand over the data. So we see also these battles whereby the U.S. tech companies don't simply acquiesce to the demands of the state. And I think there's a, a common perception that the Chinese companies don't have the same kind of freedom. And that has now led to these concerns, for instance, in the United States, that when companies like TikTok obtain the data of Americans, will that be passed on immediately and unconditionally to Beijing? I sometimes think in my mind that another one of these kind of funhouse mirror kind of examples, perhaps in the U.S., it seems like, and I'm, again, I'm drawing a caricature here, but the U.S., it seems like the government is somewhat more beholden to the tech firms than the other way around, whereas in China, it's the opposite. Yeah, I, I like that analogy. And that is one of the central concerns of my book, that ultimately are the true digital empires, the tech companies, because the government has made a political choice to set these companies free and not to impose those guardrails. So we have in the United States a legislation like Section 230, which is effectively a liability shield for these companies. So if you post something on YouTube, YouTube remains, so Google and YouTube remain free to take that content down or not to do so. And they are not held liable because they are not considered the ones who produced or are the origins of that information. So those are the kind of laws that ultimately gave these companies tremendous power to behave as they wish. But there, I would like to emphasize that even if these laws set these companies free, it is the lawmakers in the U.S. that hold the power to rewrite those laws and to take back the control and leverage the authority that they have as lawmakers. But for a variety of reasons, we have seen the inability or unwillingness to do so in practice. We've got the U.S. leveraging its private power, you say, China, its infrastructure power, very clear kind of distinctions between its models. And then you describe the EU leveraging its regulatory power. That's its sort of superpower. This book's about thinking about where these things overlap, where they come into conflict, but is it right to think of the EU as a kind of middle way? You might emerge from this sort of thinking that perhaps that's the way you framed it, but that doesn't seem quite right. Well, I think there's a framing to say that the EU model is the, the middle way, because often in public conversation, there is this perception that we have two technological superpowers and the world is basically facing a choice between aligning themselves with the U.S. or with China. We have free internet, we have controlled internet, and the rest of the world would be at the mercy of the tech war between the two superpowers and forced to subscribe to an alternative vision that they have for the digital world. And there I challenge that claim. I argue that the EU is not willing to, nor is it forced to, choose between the U.S. and China. 
for the EU, the Chinese model, the state-driven model is too oppressive. But also the US model is something that the Europeans are comfortable with. That is too permissive. And that's why the Europeans have crafted their own third way forward. And I think many individuals and governments around the world now, with this increasing resentment with the power of the tech companies, have come to the conclusion that it is the European model that best checks corporate power and protects democratic structures of our society and generally advances uh, public interest. So in that sense, I would say that, yes, the Europeans do provide a different vision for the EU and for the broader world. The argument that's often made in the U.S., of course, is that the EU regulatory model impedes innovation. There's a reason these big tech firms are not located in Europe for the most part. They come from Silicon Valley. You take that on in the book. You suggest that's not necessarily the case. What's the evidence for that? Yes, Justin, there is a very entrenched view that there's an inevitable trade-off between digital regulation and innovation. And the more stringent your digital regulation, then less innovation one proceeds. And at, at first sight, you look at the EU that is very capable of generating regulations, but that is clearly lagging behind the US in actually generating technologies. That seems to be ringing true. But I don't think the European digital regulations are the reason why the Europeans haven't managed to create a thriving tech industry. So it is not because of the GDPR that the Europeans are behind, or if the Europeans now decided to scrap the AI Act that they are working on, it's not that suddenly we would have this booming AI industry emerging from Europe. So I rather point four factors that I think alone are much more um, important sort of components of the tech ecosystem in the US and the EU that explains the differences. So one is that there is no integrated digital single market in the EU. It is very hard for tech companies to scale across 27 different markets where they face cultural barriers, linguistic barriers, but also many remaining legal barriers that the EU has failed to remove. Second, it is much harder to fund your tech innovations in the EU. So if you compare to very robust, thriving venture capital industry in the US, you just don't find anything comparable in the EU. And there is not, for instance, a deep integrated capital markets union that would allow then uh, tech startups to tap into capital across the EU. I would also mention the sort of attitude towards risk-taking and failure. Because you cannot really pursue the most ambitious innovations if you don't have entrepreneurs that are comfortable taking risks. And in the EU, you often penalize if you take risks and if you fail. So the bankruptcy laws are very punitive in the EU. So failure is often fatal. Whereas in the Silicon Valley, it's the rite of passage and then you go and raise more money. So that obviously creates very different in incentives for tech entrepreneurship. And, and then, Justin, I would mention a, a fourth fact that, that to me is really significant. So you cannot have innovation if you don't have innovators. And the U.S. has been extremely successful in drawing the best talent, not just from across the U.S., but from across the world. So immigration has been a powerful uh, instrument for the U.S. 
to enhance its tech innovation. So if you even just look at over $1 billion startups uh, in the U.S., over 50% of those have an immigrant founder. Or um, if we focus for a moment um, just on these household names, the largest tech companies that all of us talk about on a daily basis, and, and think about, for instance, Steve Jobs of Apple. He is a uh, son of a Syrian immigrant. Jeff Bezos of Amazon is a second-generation Cuban. Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, is South African. Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google, is Russian. Eduardo Savarin, the co-founder of Facebook, is Brazilian. And I could go on. But this really shows you how the U.S. has benefited enormously from foreign talent and something that the Europeans haven't managed to replicate. So there's a whole explanation why the U.S. tech sector is doing so much better than the European tech sector. And if we were just to, for instance, get rid of the GDPR, we would not do anything to these other fundamental features that I think have much more explanatory power in practice. So I want to turn back to this idea that the U.S. has overplayed its hand. Current president is reinvested in some of these uh, efforts around internet freedom. You've got the Senate majority leader running these AI forums where he claims innovation is our North Star. You've got still years into a tech lash, uh, almost no regulation that has been put forward, at least at the federal level, to constrain any of the large uh, tech platforms. Um, what kind of undergirds your sense that all of this is actually a sign of weakness of the U.S. tech model? So the U.S. tech model, I think, has outlived its sort of initial success and usefulness and ability to create the kind of digital society that people at large benefit from and are comfortable with. But somehow the U.S. political system just cannot update. It cannot really adjust to these changing realities, and it cannot really be responsive to the change in public opinion. So we have a very different conversation about uh, these tech companies in the U.S. today. So the Americas no longer trust these tech companies, and these tech companies have a track record showing that they are not the guardians of our data. They do not uh, moderate content online in ways that would create a more robust, inclusive democracy. So they have failed us repeatedly. And at the same time, the U.S. Congress has not managed to do anything about it. And I think that just shows the kind of broader failure of the U.S. political model, that it is no longer responsive to the needs and the will of its citizens. And that concerns me a great deal. One of the things you speak to with regard to the kind of fight between the U.S. and China is the points at which the kind of skirmish goes to each other's soil. You mentioned earlier already that there's been a lot of U.S. investment, of course, in Chinese tech and, of course, vice versa. And there's quite a battle on uh, with regard to actual hardware uh, as well as software and Internet access in both places. Where does this sort of heat up? What are the things that are most at contention at the moment when it comes to how the tech industry from China operates in the U.S. and vice versa? Yeah, so there is a growing sense that the most important battleground is now technology. 
So tech is the source of economic power, but it is also a source of geopolitical power. And it is a key ingredient uh, that, that, that determines the future military power as well. So that's why the, the question of the tech supremacy has become really central uh, for the U.S.-China rivalry in today's geopolitical era, where uh, each uh, perceives uh, one another more as a, a threat. So there's a growing sense that China is really catching up to the U.S., in terms of developing its innate capabilities and therefore gaining a much more prominent role in the global economy. And that for the U.S. is only not only an economic uh, challenge, uh, it is also a geopolitical, potentially military, and a big ideological challenge because that really is potentially taking the world uh, to a, a sort of very different place uh, ideologically and politically than the world that was centered on these American ideas of liberal democracy and the expansion of, of those freedoms embedded in that philosophy. So right now, the uh, technology, for instance, around AI is seen as absolutely critical. So China has declared that it wants to be the leader in AI by 2030. And it shows some signs that it is marching towards that goal. So China has uh, made very important strides in growing uh, its AI capabilities. And the U.S. is determined to, to retain its own supremacy and increasingly also then to, um, to use the more con- uh, sort of contentious word contain uh, the, the Chinese growth, or at least to make sure that the U.S. is not contributing to the buildup of Chinese capabilities that can then be turned against the U.S. in terms of, for instance, the military capabilities of China. So here, for instance, if I zoom into one of the key battles, it's really about the chips, the semiconductors that are critical for the hardware that is then critical, providing the computing power for artificial intelligence. And that's where we have seen export controls, where the U.S. has collaborated with the Japanese and key European manufacturers to restrict China's access to these high-end chips. We see investment controls, whether inbound or outbound, that is also now then preventing the U.S. capital to flow into building uh, China's own capabilities in this domain. So this is an an increasingly contentious, but also very costly battle, because um, even though some of these restrictions seem to be working, um, there's, there's also a consensus that none of these powers can become truly technologically sovereign. You cannot replicate domestically the complex and costly supply chain that is now powering our semiconductors, for instance. So this is likely to be the battle that will wage on. We see escalation alternate with de-escalation because we realize how costly this battle is and how much the commercial destinies of the U.S. and China remain deeply intertwined. I'm struck by the role that all of this might play in the thinking around Taiwan on both sides. I know that it's not, of course, the only thing that's at play in the kind of battle for the future of Taiwan, but what do you expect will happen there? Do you think concern over semiconductors will play a significant role in the decision whether to enter into a kinetic conflict in Taiwan, maybe possible? So that's obviously the most dangerous scenario. 
reading for the probabilities that China would actually launch a military a attack uh, against Taiwan to seize control of TMSC, that is a key manufacturer of semiconductors, uh, that is a, an extremely dangerous and scary scenario. And I think many experts uh, still perceive that to be highly unlikely, but at the same time, it cannot be fully excluded. So there, there's been growing tensions around uh, Taiwan, and I think it still um, informs the strategic thinking uh, in the U.S., but also in Europe and other parts of the world. But that is that would be a very costly conflict, and it would take us to a very different territory in 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 this uh, ongoing tech war. So, what of the rest of the world outside these three great powers? I mean, you spend a bit of time on India. Perhaps could argue maybe India might present a kind of different model. Should perhaps be uh, the fourth digital empire uh, here. How do you think about India? How do you think about uh, perhaps even Africa uh, as a a region of the world that may present different models or a different model? Yes. Yeah, so I think the rest of the world are often important battleground states for these empires. And there are certain countries that more neatly fall within the sphere of influence of China, for instance, or within the sphere of influence of Europe or the US. But I think many countries are straddling between these different models and maybe adopting elements of each. So when I mentioned that how these ex uh, empires export their models and expand their sphere of influence, they all are doing it in somewhat different ways. So the U.S. is exporting its private power. China is exporting its infrastructure power. So building 5G networks, undersea cables, data centers, surveillance cities, and so forth. And the Europeans are often exporting their regulatory power. So this leads into each empire contributing a different layer to the digital governance. So you have many countries where there's a tremendously important presence of U.S. tech companies, but where you also find Chinese infrastructure and European regulations governing that technology and the infrastructure in those countries. So that also leads that there is a simultaneous influence by the three empires in different markets. So if we focus on India, for instance, it is big enough of a market that it is also in the position to carve out its own space and, and, and articulate its own vision. I wouldn't say that India right now is a fourth empire. I don't think there's a the kind of expansion of an sort of India vision for the digital economy or the presence of Indian tech companies, technologies or regulations outside of India, but it clearly is a major market. If you just think about the internet users and also the, um, how active the government has been. For instance, it has been cracking down on Chinese tech companies. Many Chinese apps are prohibited in India. So it has taken a rather hard line against China. I think it's a good example that if you look at the new privacy legislation in India, it is in many ways following closely the European GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. But then it introduces very tough data localization provisions. That seems to be a feature from China. So it seems to be taking more selectively the elements of each empire and according to what are the needs of the country. What of other countries that are caught in the midst of all this in Latin America, Africa? So Latin America and Africa have been 
continents where China has made very important strides. And the U.S. and the EU have woken up to the reality how much the Chinese um, digital infrastructure is now blanketing those key markets. So China has been building this digital Silk Road across Asia, but also across Africa and Latin America. And in many ways, it has been very difficult for the U.S. and the EU to counter that Chinese influence. So many of these countries are developing countries. They need a path to digital development. And China is providing them. And their infrastructure is pretty good and it is affordable. And if the U.S. and the EU cannot provide them an alternative, it is very hard to ask these countries to say no to Chinese technology infrastructure. And in many ways, even though the U.S. and the EU have been very concerned that this Chinese infrastructure basically expands the surveillance empire of Beijing and all the data, for instance, would be then funneled directly to the the Chinese government, it's just not a first-order concern for many of these countries. So we can afford to worry about our data privacy. But there are many developing countries where, for instance, they have tremendous law enforcement needs and where the people are much more comfortable with surveillance cameras if they believe that keeps them safe. And they say that I don't wake up every day to think about what happens to my privacy today. So that's also a, a different conversation that you have that is taking place in, the, in these markets on what does it mean for them to, to be part of the sort of Chinese empire, even if loose, loosely so and not subscribing necessarily even to the Chinese ideology. But also, I I do mention, I I would want to mention, Justin, that there is, the world is turning more authoritarian. There are many authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning countries that are very comfortable with the Chinese model and want to emulate it. And there's something that also makes the Chinese model attractive, is that even though it's hard for us to acknowledge in the the democratic uh, countries, China has shown to the world that you don't need to be free to innovate. They have managed to create a thriving tech economy without those political freedoms. So many of these countries look at China and say, well, we can have it both. We can have growth, we can have innovation, and we can have political control. And that is also an additional challenge for the U.S. and the EU then to persuade these countries to abandon collaboration with China and choose the U.S. and EU instead. So I am speaking to you just after having read the most recent Freedom on the Net report, which finds a 13th consecutive year of declines in internet freedom, obviously against the backdrop of declines in democracy generally across the world. You've just brought this up, but in the battle of the techno-democracies versus the techno-autocracies, are the autocracies winning? Uh, Is that the future? So it is my concern that they have a possibility of winning unless the techno-democracies can really consolidate a democratic front and provide an alternative view that resonates around the world. So, and, and there are a couple of things that I think it would take for the techno-democracies to prevail. So one is that it certainly would help if the US and the EU would overcome their differences and rather than align their positions and jointly uh, lead this coalition in a way that there is a cohesive vision among the techno-democracies. It most likely would take the U.S. to move closer to the EU in terms of the 
adoption of a sort of a rights-driven regulatory model. And I think in some ways, the EU is now a little bit more willing to work with the US because initially this very stark way of, of having a very sort of combative stand against China wasn't easy for the Europeans to follow. So the Europeans, they, the economy is very tied to opportunities in China and the EU wasn't quite as willing to take a hard line on China. But I think that China's refusal to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been the kind of political move that has really shifted the attitudes towards China in the EU as well. So now that also seems to be more of the same conversation where the US and the EU are a better place to collaborate in terms of their position towards China as well. But also the US and the EU need to realize that they both are increasingly playing Beijing's game. They are pushing for more techno-nationalist, techno-protectionist worldview, whereby the rest of the world knows that abandoning China and collaborating with the EU and US doesn't mean that they have fully open market and they can really engage fully uh, with the economic opportunities in those markets. And that is also something that I think the US and the EU uh, ought to be mindful of. But Justin, if I may say that what really leaves me concerned is that the, the U.S. and the EU have had a hard time showing that there is a liberal democratic way to govern the digital economy. So we've already talked about how difficult, how many difficulties there are for the U.S. to actually legislate. Nothing is coming out of the Congress, even though the public opinion is shifting to be more favorable on regulation. The Europeans are also having a very hard time enforcing their regulations. So they can regulate, but their enforcement record leaves much to be desired. At the same time, China can legislate. And if the Chinese Communist Party decides that it's time to force, then it is time to enforce. And they can also do that. And that leaves me very worried that liberal democracy can be lost in, in one of two ways. So one is if the US and the EU lose their horizontal battle to China. But also, if they lose their vertical battle to tech companies, and we need to ultimately concede that the digital economy can only be governed by the authoritarians like China or by the tech companies, and that those are the real digital empires. So on some level, what I hear is perhaps the rapacious greed of Silicon Valley could end up being the kind of Achilles heel of the Western approach to tech could imperil the future or the vision of the future that maybe Western leaders would like to say is an alternative to China. Absolutely. I think that these tech companies can undermine democracy directly through their products and services. So if you are a platform for disinformation, that then undermines democratic elections. Obviously, that is a weapon that is striking directly at the political institutions that are at the core of our uh, liberal uh, democracies. But also then the fact that our governments haven't really found a way to show to the world that liberal democracy is effective in governing these companies. I think it's harder than to tell the world that they ought to be following that model if they themselves cannot show that model is actually working in practice. I want to just ask you about X factors that you might see coming in the near term. 
that may change this picture. You've mentioned AI, the race to AI. Of course, some folks regard if one country gets to an artificial general intelligence or even a super intelligence first, that's the ultimate competitive advantage and will signal the end of this conflict. Putting that aside, assuming that's a maybe slightly fantastical or too far in the future, other things that might happen. We're in a very real scenario in the U.S. right now where Donald Trump could once again become president. How would that change the kind of balance of powers amongst the digital empire? Yeah, so we actually don't see a major difference in the approach towards tech companies and digital economy between Democrats and, and Republicans. So as you mentioned, President Biden has continued uh, President Trump's trade war and tech war and indeed uh, even doubled down in many ways. So the, the, the divided Congress doesn't seem to agree on anything, but they do agree that China is prevalent and they agree that big tech is too powerful. But that doesn't mean that there's necessarily a cohesive legislative agenda that emerges from that principal consensus. But I think that the hard line against China will continue. I think what makes it probably what makes a difference, the policy has probably become more unpredictable. So uncertainty in the economy will probably grow, even if we knew that generally the regime of export controls, investment restrictions will continue. We may see a less of a prospect for collaboration with other tech democracies. So President Trump doesn't have a track record from his past administration that he would have been a reliable partner for collaboration. So we talked about earlier on the importance of US-EU cooperation, and that may unravel to some extent. And I think that concerns the Europeans a great deal. So even though now we see closer transatlantic alignment, uh, we see productive conversation in Trade and Technology Council. That is an institution that was established to coordinate and mitigate some of the regulatory differences. And that kind of collaboration can become more challenging under, under President Trump. Just one more question in this sort of vein. I suppose there's a risk that now that the EU's got all of its ducks in a row with regard to regulation, it's got privacy, it's got Digital Markets Act, it's got Digital Services Act. By the end of the year, it'll have the first big AI act in the world. Um, what if it turns out this is a paper tiger, that the enforcement's not there, or that it's simply not enough to stand up to the power that has concentrated in these large tech firms? That's a real possibility, it seems to me. You've got Elon Musk kind of staring down Terry Brutton at the moment. Could be the case that ultimately the contradictions in the Digital Services Act between sort of regulation and on the one hand and speech and liberty on the other kind of unravel a little bit in that conflict. What do you see happening there? Is that a possibility? I think it is a possibility. And, and I think that is a very dangerous possibility, but not entirely difficult to imagine. So the, the uh, enforcement of the GDPR has been deficient. And I think the EU is well aware of that. It has also had unintended consequences, including then being relatively more costly to small companies that have had a hard time complying with the GDPR obligations. 
So it has entrenched further the power of the big tech companies that can afford to comply with the European stringent privacy regulations. So I think one big uh, challenge has been that the European enforcement architecture has really relied on fines. And when you try to find these tech giants, that is just not enough because for these tech companies, they pay the fines. They don't worry too much. It's the price of doing for doing business in the EU. But here the EU is now trying to change tact and do something quite different with the laws like the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. So first of all, these two pieces of legislation that deal with content moderation, but also sort of its anti-regulation of competition in the marketplace, they are by design asymmetrical. So they are targeting with greater obligations that are designed for the large tech companies. So the DMAs only uh, for these digital uh, gatekeepers. So this problem uh, around the GDPR, where the small companies were disproportionately affected, should not be an issue with these uh, legislations to the same extent. They also move beyond just fines and they are trying to target these business models themselves. And that is an opportunity for the Europeans to say that we actually can entrench our goals into concrete market outcomes. We are Now we have the tools to ask these companies to change the way they do business. So if you have your Google Android phone, you need to basically be presented a choice screen that you can choose which browser you want which maps application you want, and you are not immediately defaulted into Google's own ecosystem. So those are the ways that the Europeans are trying to redistribute power away from the big platforms and empower the users themselves. But it is a big test case of whether this this new set of tools that the regulators have actually will then make a, a difference. And if it doesn't, I think that really would erode the deterrence and legitimacy and the effectiveness of the European rights-driven model. So the, the stakes are high and the European regulators have a great need to get this right. You end the book by basically explaining the stakes again, that this is about the future, about what type of future we want to have, what type of society we want to have. It's always seemed to me that the arguments over tech policy are about this. This is really what's underneath it all. Who gets to make the rules? How do we want to live? Who gets power? Who does not? How do we arrive at perhaps a better understanding of the alternative futures? You've painted a picture here, but I have a sense that this book is slightly pessimistic, that the kind of Western liberal democratic order will triumph, that it won't continue to lose ground to a more perhaps oppressive and yet maybe very effective model in China? So I I probably wouldn't like to say that it's pessimistic, but I think it issues a warning or it's a call to action that it really tries to paint those different futures that are awaiting us. And through that, impress it upon the tech companies, the governments and individuals that we are making choices that are extremely consequential. And our lives and societies will evolve in very different ways, depending on how we make those choices. So my hope is that by really explaining the stakes in how we design our digital societies, it will reinvigorate 
the legislators to say that we need to show that liberal democracy works, which means we really need to ramp up our efforts in legislating and in enforcing. And it really engages the users of technology, the citizens, to advocate for what is the kind of society that they want to be part of, so that when we still have responsive democratic societies, that that feedback gets interwoven into the legislative ambition. And also, I think it is a message for tech companies that they are a key decision makers through their products and services. And I think they have a tremendous responsibility. And ultimately, I do hope that they take the legacy that they are leaving behind very seriously and would understand that ultimately there are certain decisions about society where they should not be comfortable just being the main decision makers, but they actively welcome the legislators to share that stage with them and try to be good citizens as well as some of the main architects of our digital society. So I'm not sure it's pessimistic. I think it is realistic and it warns us what happens if we just subscribe to this techno-determinist view and let, for instance, AI revolution run its own course, as opposed to really taking agency in shaping what that course ought to look like. This book's called Digital Empires, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology. Uh, excellent resource, I think, for anybody that's listening to the Tech Policy Press podcast, of course, and one I hope to use with my students as well. Anu Bradford, thank you so much for speaking to me about this. This was great. Really exciting conversation. So thank you for having me, Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Press.